Is public ignorance a problem? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Nick Cowan. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today our guest is Nick Cowan. Nick is an associate professor in the School of Social and Political Sciences at the University of Lincoln, where he teaches key social science concepts, human rights, social issues and social justice, images of crime, and applying research. His research explores the contributions of private enterprises and civil society towards crime prevention, social order, public health, and the environment. One forthcoming paper he co-authored is called Include the Ignorant, and that will be the basis of our conversation today. Nick, welcome back to The Curious Task. It's been a little while. Oh, thank you very much for having me on again, Alex. It's always a pleasure. Yeah, and it's great having you back. So we base each episode on a theme and question, as you know, and go over the answers and conversation takes us. The question for our episode today is, is public ignorance a problem? And as I said in the bio, which was just read, uh, a lot of this conversation will be based on your forthcoming paper that you're co-authoring. It's called Include the Ignorant. Um, but I want to start out in the broadest sense. I mean, like like in many things in pol- politics, philosophy, economics, sometimes words mean different things. So what do we mean when it, when we say ignorance when it comes to politics and voters? I know we're, we're not calling everyone stupid about everything, but but what, what are we saying about ignorance in this way? Well, I, I suppose in the broad sense, uh, ignorance means lack of knowledge. So, you know, you, one, one isn't stupid for not having knowledge just means you haven't, you haven't learned it or you, you haven't, uh, you know, you haven't been exposed to the right information at, at, at some point. So that's, that's kind of where a lot of the, um, uh, the debate uh, is at the moment. And I suppose when we're thinking about what ignorance means in a public setting, um, when we look at the literature, it kind of refers to, I think, two broad things. Uh, the first is um, effectively, what do you know about the political process? So in a democracy, do you know who your representative is? Do you know what sort of things they vote on? Um, do you know what their views are? Do you know what party they are? Do you know how many um, representatives there are in, the, in, your, in your assembly? Um, do you know who the current um, Secretary of State for Health is or, or, or whatever the, the equivalent would be in whichever uh, country that you're, you're, you're dealing with? So do you know who the personnel, uh, you know, the personnel who are doing the politics? Do you know these? Do you have this factual information and do you know what kind of roles they have? And do you know how legislation and other kinds of um, regulations get introduced? Um, and then the second thing is going to be like the broader issues of, um, you know, like, do you, do you understand what the likely out, outcome of introducing certain policies uh, are? So uh, a classic one would be, um, do you know the evidence on what introducing rent control in order to try and, um, in order to try and bring down the price of, uh, of housing would be? Um, you know, are, are you aware of those kind of, uh, I suppose, that sort of uh, broad consensus um, socioeconomic findings, the sort of stuff that academics might talk about in kind of in sociology, economics and, uh, and, and social policy and public administration? Mm-hmm. No, thank you for that outline. So I guess before we get into some specific uh, critiques and things that, you know, specifically classical liberals have raised when it comes to, you know, democracy and the problem of voter ignorance, I just want to say, so uh, if that's what, you know, sort of ignorance is, as you defined it in that way, in a public policy sense, I guess, 
in in the broadest sense the problem of public ignorance i suppose is you know different you know uh you know uh, political scientists economists and so on and so forth if i understand correctly are essentially uh, thinking about the fact that if you know in, in a world where you don't have everyone 100% educated on every issue, there are problems that come from that or, or, or things to think about, essentially, if, if I'm understanding this giant umbrella that is the problem of public ignorance. Uh, absolutely. And, uh, you know, it, it's not so much a problem of people not being 100% educated, but according to people who think this is a major problem, it's the issue that they're not 10% educated. Um, right. So people have... Uh, uh, they have they have a lot of misconceptions, so they 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 know stuff that isn't true, uh, and uh, and at the same time, very basic facts about say uh, who current political leaders are and what they stand for. Apparently, many members of the public um, uh, have have little to no idea what's what's going on. Um, so uh, that's that. Uh, and on that front, uh, me and, and my co-author Aris Tranditis, who's, who's also a, um, a lecturer at the University of Lincoln, um, uh, we, we would we would kind of agree with the people who are concerned that this is a problem uh, with, uh, with with public ignorance. There's, there's there's a lot of data out there showing that um, yeah, when it comes to basic facts that we can't really disagree about, there's just a lot of ignorance out there among the general public. Mm-hmm. And 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 I think um like even in sort of like the, let's call it like the, you know mainstream political punditry public intellectual arena uh, not only is sort of voter ignorance being talked about but also like this idea of like disinformation and misinformation this is a huge topic now so I guess the idea there is is, is not only are people uh, not aware of certain policies uh, the way the cabinet works in a certain country or whatever else but but they also actively believe uh, in things that are not necessarily true or at least half true or whatever whatever else i mean the spectrum there from what i've heard seems to be people are concerned with everything from just not knowing exactly what's going on to believing outright lies i'm not sure if you had any like thoughts on that like would you consider those sort of two different categories i mean you have sort of public policy and public ignorance on the one end then you have like this misinformation slash disinformation problem they are related but but how overlapping do you sort of think they are as like a general feeling or, or is this just a giant ball of thought um, process we need to get into yeah i mean i i, I don't like to uh, try and conjecture out of sample and i suppose when we're looking at, at technological change so things such as the rise of ai and uh, you know these kind of algorithmic approaches to um uh, facilitating misinformation um I, I i don't want to kind of say oh that's definitely not a problem um, you know, it could well be a a, a problem. Um, there's still a question over um, what the implications of saying that's a problem. Uh, you know, d- does it mean we have to radically change our institutions? Uh, does it mean that, uh, you know, democracy is bound to fail, uh, for example? Um, but I, I don't know if I don't think anyone can know enough yet whether that is a, is a problem. But even before, you know, the rise of this kind of this sort of new notion of kind of uh, misinformation, you know, or, or fake news, which, uh, you know, obviously, it's been with us for for years, but it's now it's now coming to us in a in a different in a different media. But um, right. uh, we're looking at the more basic issue of ignorance. So you know, even before we get we get onto that, maybe it's radicalizing the problem in some ways. Maybe in some ways it's making it better. Who knows? Um, but it's uh, um, you know even even the basic issue that people have no starting idea how a great deal of our democratic processes work. That that's enough of a of a chunky problem to get to get into. 
Right. Fair enough. And with that sort of overview and a couple different concepts and outline them there, I'm going to slowly move us into some more specific things here. So um, I I was just going to ask you broadly, of course, you can't outline every one of them here, but at least outline some of the kinds of concerns and critiques that some classical liberals raise when it comes to democracy and the problem of voter ignorance. I mean, in in the paper, you you folks do this. Um, But just to get a flavor of the idea of you know, some of the critiques and things that you've read and you think about when, you know, it, it seems to me a lot of these folks effectively say, okay, you know, voter ignorance is here. It is a problem. So here's what we have to say about that. If you could just give us sort of a flavor of the kind of, you know, uh, things in classical liberal circles that they have to say about that. Well, I, I, I guess um, the, the, concern, the concern with classical liberals is, you know, we, we kind of take a kind of rational actor approach uh, to, to, these, to these kind of things. So um, at least as a kind of I don't know a first pass. You know, we get we get a bit more nuanced as things go in, but we start off with the with the assumption that people are, are rational, and then you can't help but observe that in mass democracies, your vote does not count. It cannot count in any kind of plausible scenario. So you're not going to affect um, the policy outcomes through the fact that you have you have voted. So um, so that uh, which means that the um, wh- why you vote at all is a little bit of a puzzle for some for some classical liberals, but um, it's it's not that costly. You know, it's it's something you can you know you can say that you've done it. It's something to talk about that kind of thing. So there's enough you know if, it, th- there's enough reason why you might do it, but you're certainly not going to invest that much time in learning um, how to vote well. Uh, because that would be, you know, there's lots of other stuff you could do with your time. Um, and you could, you could go about your own business. You could laugh to your family. You can become, uh, you know, you, you, you can, you can uh, uh, work, you, know, you can contribute more to the marketplace and that, and that kind of thing. Uh, whereas um, since your vote uh, doesn't, doesn't count, and it's purely expressive. Um, you don't have to kind of focus too much on that. So you can be profoundly ignorant and, and, and vote and it's not going to make any difference on an individual level. But of course, if you take it up to the scale, you know, to the mass scale, then that means, and if everyone is voting ignorantly and, um, uh, and are voting kind of expressively, uh, then you're going to end up with a lot of biased and ignorant um, uh, decisions uh, that are kind of happening on the, on the collective level. Um, so uh, the, um, uh, I, I suppose one of the most prominent people that we, we try and engage with is Jason Brennan at, uh, at Georgetown. And he has this, this great kind of uh, uh, categorization between uh, types of voters. And he says that um, the vast majority of voters are kind of hobbits. Um, so they're kind of people who are basically fairly easygoing, agreeable people um, who uh, are not particularly politically engaged because why would you be? It's like a, you know, it's like a, it's an angry arena where people are kind of disagreeing with each other. Um, but perhaps they might be pushed to go along with, um, you know, what seems to be the, the thing to do or the, or the, the person to vote for in their community. Uh, maybe, um, you know, if, if, they're, if they're urged to participate at all. Uh, then you've got hooligans um, who derive pleasure from the kind of aggression and assertiveness of the political arena. And they're going to pick a side and they're going to love it when their side wins and they're going to gnash their teeth when their side loses. And they're going to come up with all kinds of reasons why you should vote for their side and why the other side really, really sucks. Uh, and so rather like a kind of sporting game, they're going to kind of derive that kind of expressive pleasure from having a side and trying to get the other side uh, to lose. And that's what political partisans look like. And then you've got this third category, which is uh, the Vulcans. So, you know, kind of derived from Star Trek. And the idea is that these are the cool, rationally reflective 
publicly spirited people who are thinking, well, what's genuinely going to produce um, better outcomes for society? Um, uh, that you know, for that, and that's sort of ideally what your ideal Democrat, what your ideal public citizen is supposed to do. And what Jason Brennan points out is is to say, look, according to all the empirics, um, the Vulcans are very thin on the ground, whereas uh, hobbits and hooligans are pretty much everywhere you look. So that's your your typical voter. Um, and so we, we're not going to expect very much useful information to come through um, uh, just without doing something to ensure that people are educated. Okay. And and I guess if, if that's sort of like the outlook, I guess, and the framework, I think it's a useful one to work with in the conversation. So let's press forward with it. Um, like, I, I guess then, you know... Uh, I'm sort of teasing out the point here, but I, I do know for a fact, like J- Jason uh, and, and some others have proposed like a type of solution that could work when it comes to at least mitigating some of the problems that come with this sort of makeup. So I was wondering if you can get a bit into that. Cause I know um, like I'm, I'm referring here to epistocracy and I know mm-hmm. that's not the, uh, the only um, let's say work or ideas or thoughts out there by various classical liberals about how to, I guess, address the problems of uh, voter ignorance. And of course we're going to talk about yours later on. Uh, but, but I think epistocracy did seem to get, uh, this might be inside baseball, but a little uh, more than a little trendy in, in classical liberal circles, to say the least. So I was wondering if you could sort of outline sort of what that is, first of all, because I haven't done that. And then uh, second of all, just your, your thoughts on it, because I think that that was ultimately uh, different forms of epistocracy seem to be the solution in some people's heads to the problem that we just outlined. Well, yes. Uh, so, so I suppose epistocracy um, in some way shouldn't be considered a a like the the absolute opposite of democracy rather it's democracy with a few nudges that are meant to um weigh the balance somewhat more in favor of um of uh, of the people who are more politically educated um so th- this this can be done uh you know in a variety of ways but you can kind of basically give more votes to to people who uh, demonstrate um uh, you know, kind of uh, greater knowledge and greater engagement with uh, with political issues, um, and uh, um, uh, so you don't have to kind of actively totally disenfranchise the ignorant, but uh, you can kind of uh, and and I think the idea is you can propagate a norm that people ought to be educated before they go to the voting booth. So there's there's a kind of continuum of interventions, but the the overall idea is that the the idea that you should give one person one vote to just simpliciter that is. What, what epistocrats would do is, is characterize that as a kind of extreme scenario, uh, one that the evidence doesn't suggest that you should, you should do. And in a sense, this stuff goes back um, generations in classical liberal thought. So um, a, a character with a lot of tensions, uh, you know, so as I have a lot of concerns about, about um, his overall outlook, but someone I've also found very, very attractive and someone who I've found useful to defend over the years is John Stuart Mill. Um, who, you know, are kind of uh, someone who is kind of very much important both in the classical liberal tradition and also in the kind of what we might think of as the modern liberal or high liberal tradition, like both, both sides kind of, um, uh, kind of think about him because, um, you know, he had some, he had some strong pro market views, but latterly a little bit, uh, a little bit more skeptical and had some ideas that maybe socialism might be able to work under certain circumstances. And when it came to representative democracy, what he wanted to do was kind of have a progressive increase in the franchise. He's writing the 19th century before the mass franchise has kind of been, been rolled right. out, but he wants to kind of get to a stage where people get to the point of being uh, educated enough. Um, and in the meantime, he's quite content with giving multiple votes uh, to, to people in, um, 
uh, you know, with with kind of uh, with higher levels of education. And this is even reflected, uh, well, for many years, it was reflected in Britain, where uh, graduates of Oxford and Cambridge had an extra vote. They had, you know, because mm-hmm. the Oxford and Cambridge had this uh, had, had these MPs in uh, who, who served who served in, in Parliament as well. And they, they were kind of elected. So there was like, even there, there was like a kind of a, a small nudge in favour of the um, of of the more highly educated, and so it's it's those kind of uh, uh, categories, and there there are various ways that you can kind of um, at the risk of sounding a little bit pejorative, sort of disguise what you're doing, so you can ensure that the expressive element is not kind of damaged. So in other words, you don't you don't turn people away from the voting booth, but once you've put them in as an input, the idea is that you're going to weight it so that the people who we actually expect to have the right roughly the right idea about what's going on are going to make a more decisive uh, play a more decisive role in the eventual policy outcome. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I do have a couple more like sort of follow-ups on that and like, and getting a little bit more into the meat of the matter to uh, I guess what your uh, overall problems and critiques of like that sort of approach would be. But um, I want, I, I do want to pivot to something else before we do that. Um, but before we do just at a high level, I guess almost like a teaser for later, almost what would you say at the highest level is, is sort of your problem then with epistocracy or you think at, at first blush, is it, is it effectively just like like you were saying, sort of disguising some sort of uh, the the effect of what you're doing, even if the principle is different. If I'm understanding you correctly, well, I, I guess um, there there are two two key points that we have for criticizing the kind of uh, uh, the, the, this kind of whole epistocratic mindset, and uh, the first is, um, is 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 a comparative point. So um, by definition people who run dictatorships or like semi-democracies or authoritarian democracies, you know, we've got a continuum of, of regimes from, from democracies that we can observe. And their outcomes are pretty bad, even though uh, the, um, uh, compared to democracy, uh, even though uh, they, the people who are running the system are necessarily going to be much more educated than the average uh, voter in a democracy. So uh, that's that's an initial puzzle. Like, what? Why is it that we don't seem to have? Uh, like, there, there aren't many examples of um, more authoritarian state states that are kind of saying, "Hey, look, we've got we've got it better." You know, the the people live better under this regime uh, compared to democracy. So that's a little bit of a puzzle. Um, and the the other side. Uh, so our, our second point is that. Uh, epistocrats slightly misunderstand what it is that social knowledge uh, is. And and, and our point is that basically knowledge does not reside in any single person or group of people or specific community. Rather, knowledge is generated through competitive processes. Um, That's what we find for markets. That's like one of the profound points that uh, uh, Hayek um, uh, argued with respect to to markets. And um, we argue that the same is probably the case with with respect to mass democracy, that basically if the institutions are correct – it doesn't matter how ignorant the inputs are, they're still going to contribute to um, to the generation of knowledge that is useful for those who are making, you know, the particular decisions in the legislature and, and in the executive. I'm actually very glad that you sort of stepped into that point because that's that's sort of where I want to, to go next. But it's exactly as you said. I mean, like what, one of the pillars in your paper that I found very interesting is in how it's a good idea to understand 
ignorance uh, of the average person uh, is also a thing in markets. And you were just getting into that. So, so c- can you elaborate a little bit further on that point, actually? Because I think there is a lot of discussion about voter ignorance and public policy and how people don't know stuff. But I, I think we take for granted how much um, varying degrees of ignorance in the, in the same way is, is on markets. And I just wanted to hear more about that, actually, uh, and how we see market systems actually maybe overcomes not the right word, but, but either make use of or, or deal with or incorporate that ignorance. Yeah, ab- absolutely. So it, it kind of starts with our, our kind of pivot from uh, the sort of uh, the neoclassical vision of, uh, of, of market economies, where everyone, um, where basically um, the, the economy is composed of limitless buyers and sellers, or at least potentially limitless. In other words, uh, market entry is, 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 is very easy. And uh, everyone is perfectly rational and everyone has complete information. Um, so, and under those assumptions, uh, markets should clear and they should work and they should allocate resources in the most productive way possible. Now, the um, uh, uh, Hayek's big observation was, of course, that this, uh, these assumptions um, uh, don't go anywhere near to proving why it is that markets work in the real world, where people are extremely ignorant, often behave irrationally. And in fact, there are an awful lot of uh, natural and not so natural barriers to market entry. Um, so uh, we use an example, and, and to be fair, this example has proved quite controversial, um, perhaps because we haven't framed it appropriately in terms of uh, understanding where we see the parallel with uh, democracy. Um, but basically, we use the example of telecommunications um, and in particular, the kind of the markets, the markets for kind of smartphone use and smartphone service, um, which effectively is kind of something close to a duopoly um, in, uh, in, in, in most regimes. There's like a few, you know, there's a few equivalent to third party candidates. So, you know, like there's, there's some small other right. things uh, for the niche people. But generally, um, your, your choice uh, of, of like smartphone is going to be between an Android service, you, know, you can buy it with a different, few different brands, or Apple, which has a different approach because it kind of says you, you have to buy Apple if you want to be, be in our platform. And I ask, what do people know about how their smartphones work? And my answer is basically nothing, uh, you know, like, uh, you know, I'll have a play around, you know, if, if I have to kind of renew my contract, you know, I have a play around with what's on offer. Um, but I'm looking at it at a very, very shallow level. Um, uh, and um, uh, I really have very, very little idea about how any of these services work and how they put together. In fact, I don't, I don't even know how the phone is composed. So like, I know the brand on the front, but I don't know, you know, who contributed to the memory and the processors. I don't know how the, uh, the GPS works. It's all so complex, complicated, maybe not complex, but it is certainly complicated. And the, the mechanism, the, basically all the production processes that led to that smartphone being available is indeed extremely complex, a kind of, uh, no one could possibly uh, understand how how these um, uh, the the whole package of a kind of of a telecommunic telecommunication smartphone services has kind of been been put together. Um, and at the same time, this isn't the result of competitive markets, at least not classically competitive markets. It's a right. it's a, a market with extremely high barriers to entry. Um, yeah. Consumers cannot influence how uh, Google or how Apple behave. Uh, in practice, certainly not an individual consumer. Um, nevertheless, you know, every few months, a, uh, a, a new innovation comes along that people uh, seem to enjoy and, and people find useful. 
Um, and then very quickly, the other side, you know, the other the other duopoly will have to kind of the, the other side of the duopoly will have to um, adapt and make something similar as, as well. And so you get this progressive um, rivalrous um, innovation that kind of goes on in, 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 in that sector. And um, that is happening despite uh, consumers being profoundly ignorant of uh, what they're of, of, of what they're buying and what they're using. That's not to say that there aren't problems with uh, with the market. It's not it's not perfectly um, you know it's not perfectly com- competitive. So if you're I- imagining against some idealistic baseline, uh, then you might have some problems with it. Uh, nevertheless, it is remarkable what quality one does get, um, despite that kind of level of ignorance. And the key point is not that like voting is like getting a smartphone. We wouldn't want to claim that. Rather, the point is, is there is no um, systematic relationship between the level of ignorance of the person um, uh, of the kind of the final recipient and the quality of the um, uh, of the good or service that's uh, that, that, that's being selected for uh, it's it's a product of the uh, this overall process this rivalrous process in this in this case a um, a market process you know not not a not a perfectly competitive one but a, yeah. a rivalrous competitive one nevertheless and that we think contains the kernel of the reason why competitions competitions in the political process i.e democracy with fair and free elections is likely uh, through a similarly complex mechanism to produce the kind of knowledge um, that is useful for helping helping members of the general public yeah for, for me when i read that metaphor i actually in, in enjoyed it a lot i mean um like especially since i, I think competition and the level of of uh even even market orientation of telecommunications is often overstated by some that like to make the case that smartphones is like market activity. So I actually like that, that you guys identified that's exactly true. Because even at the carrier level and the, the people running the telecommunications infrastructure to talk about this as like overly competitive markets and consumers mm-hmm. are, are choosing things from a classically competitive market is way overstated to say this. So I, so I actually am, I'm throwing myself behind like that is a good metaphor. I, I'm voting on your camp on that one because I, I, I can almost hear someone in their head saying no 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 uh you know nick you got that all wrong people are still you know um dealing with these devices every day they are uh, you know indeed still uh, uh, you know basically participating in a market uh and it's still a radically different beast but i but i don't think it's as radically different as people think like, telecommunications is a very much regimented high barrier to entry thing all the way right down to the devices we use. So I like the metaphor. Just, just throwing that out there. I'm, I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad you emphasize that again because that is, yeah, that, that that is definitely the point that we're trying to make. That this is this is like classically this is a bad market, but oh, it is yeah. a competitive market. So that's the you know that that that's the idea, and, and that that's the kind of baseline. Better to have have some sort of competition than no competition at all, or to deliberately limit competition. Yeah. So, so then if we move that train of thought into back over to democratic processes, I, 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 is that the way you think it, it's healthier to think about uh, not all democracies, but of course, some democratic processes that they are just sort of like a bad market, like telecommunications and consumer electronics on telecommunications? Um, yeah, well, uh, the thing about, okay, so you certainly don't want, uh, you know, the political process to be entirely marketized, you know, we're not, we're not kind of being anarcho-capitalists here. So it's a, uh, um, so, so it's, it's a slightly different, it's a different way of looking at it. But if we're looking at, at political processes, what, what, what we'd say is that, uh, you know, we kind of have this, um, we, because we're selecting public policies, there's no option just to exit in, in, entirely. 
you know, so everyone's going to be subject to some of these uh, similar kind of common rules and common public services. So um, we're, we're already away from like what a, uh, you know, so the, the, the private choice that people, that people can make. Um, uh, and, um, and to some extent they're going to be geographically decided. So, you know, while, while you have very little choice of smartphone service, at least, when you choose the actual phone uh, and the carrier, it can be, it's not usually geographically monopolized. So, you know, there'll be, there'll be one or two options, no entry, but there's one or two options. Um, but when we're thinking about, um, a, 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 about democracy, um, our, uh, the, um, our basic, uh, the basic idea is that it's better to have some of these choices uh, and better to have a, the ability to enter even if it's practically difficult to enter. So, you know, anyone can stand for office, even if it's, you know, it's realistically, it's, it's not gonna be very feasible, but at least if it's formally available, um, then that kind of has a sort of disciplining mechanism on incumbents um, who, uh, who are gonna be thinking, well, okay, there's, there's only so much we can do to, um, uh, to, to, to ruin <laughs> the situation before we will eventually get, uh, get penalized. Um, moreover, because we are aware that we could eventually lose our seats or lose our position, we have to be listening. Um, and that listening process, that rather than the vote itself, is where the um, is, is kind of where that information comes from. So what you're as a as a kind of political representative, uh, you're getting a lot of noisy, um, very confused uh, ideas about the outcomes they're doing. A lot of complaints, a lot of grievances, um, and uh, um, you know, and, and 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 a lot of a lot of concerns. And occasionally, you're going to get some, you know, people writing in or or, or calling in or, or or saying, "Hey, you did a good job." Or you can look at Twitter and see, you know, you got your supporters are happy at least that 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 kind of thing. And um, uh, that that's that's an extremely kind of noisy, difficult to interpret set of uh, uh, set of information. But because you're in a democracy and you're going to, um, you know, there's always the risk that you might lose to um, uh, to a competitor and that competitor would really like your job. Then you're going to be thinking about how best to interpret it. And the best politicians are those that kind of take these sort of disparate, radical, dissonant kind of ideas um, from uh, the general public and, you know, the base that they're trying to cultivate, and they try and put together a package um, that they feel is going to work with, um, with, with, that, with that group. And so long as you have enough rules that prevent you from kind of um, using public funds to disperse private goods, so long as you're um, not allowed to do that, then what you're going to be doing is developing a package of public goods package of public goods and public services that you're going to fund and deliver in a particular way. And um, uh, you, you're, you're going to use that kind of that, that sort of noisy information to try and come up with your best with your best option. Uh, and that's what, you know, what kind of ordinary politicians are, are trying to do. Um, it's, it's also why people are often rather disappointed that um, uh, politicians from quite radically different ideologies tend to ultimately be offering roughly the same thing. They kind of position themselves, you know, ever so slightly to the left or ever so slightly to the right. Um, uh, you know, at least in, in, the U, in, in the US after primaries. When they're in the primaries, they have to be as radical as possible. But when they're actually right. in the, uh, uh, going, going, for, uh, go, you know, going for the mainstream office, they have to, uh, you know, they have to moderate. And the, um, and the reason why they have to do that is because ultimately they're offering, they have to offer the same thing. And that's a mix of public, public goods and public services, uh, given the, the revenue that, uh, that, they, that they can call in. Mm-hmm. 
Excellent. And I have some follow-ups I want to jump into, but it's actually just at about the time we should take our break. Mm -hmm. So we'll do that right now. Everyone, you're listening to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with Nick Cowan today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. As always, a huge thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Randy T. Simmons, Travis Smith, and John Robson. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, rate us on Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task, and check out the Institute for Liberal Studies. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Nick Cowan today. Nick, I think the, the first half was great. We, we, we covered a lot. I sort of want to round off that first half as we kick off our second half. I wanted to get to a couple other things. But before we depart from our main train of thought that we were just on there as we ended the first half, I want to say, and, and I, I don't want to like simplify it too much because I think your argument and your train of thought is, is, is very nuanced and there's a lot to it. But it, it sounds to me that one of the main points I can pull out simply stated is effectively that there shouldn't be this sort of on off switch in our brain between someone who, you know, is either quote unquote ignorant about certain things versus those who aren't. Is that, you know, the nuance of those we might even consider relatively ignorant, they still have some sort of valid input into this overall base of knowledge that the system is running on and pulling from um and and it shouldn't be discounted too hard i mean that that's kind of what i'm hearing as as the main discussion here yeah no i I think i think that's right that you don't really know who it is that's going to make a contribution um therefore there's a case for you know broad um uh, participation equal participation and the uh, ability to basically say whatever you feel like in a political setting, uh, you know, without kind of prior restraint or constraints on the way that people are going to in, in, in introduce the problems. That's what's kind of uh, democracy is, is, is about for, for me and my, uh, my co-author, Aris. Um, I, I suppose another way of looking at it would be to say that um, non-participation is kind of an option on our, on our kind of account. Um, but on the other hand, just because one is not participating does not mean that you're not necessarily, sorry, too many negatives there. <laughs> doesn't, doesn't, nevertheless, you might still be playing a pivotal role uh, because people are aware that if for some reason you, you uh, d- generate a grievance, so you get mistreated by the system in some way, you might be activated or you might be uh, activated by a potential competitor. So in other words, people are aware that one, one could choose to participate at some point. Um, and, uh, and, and the mere fact that you have this potential power as a citizen means that people have to take care about what your what your views are. So whether you're voting or not, or whether you're voting quietly without telling people exactly why you're voting, all these people need to be taken seriously by uh, people uh, who want to rule in a competitive democratic process. Mm-hmm. So, so having said all that, then, and everything we've been talking about, um, if this is all the case, and uh, what kind of implications do you think this has for democratic countries as far as changes they should make, policies they should adopt, ways they should think about the democratic process? I mean, the end of your paper sort of gets into this. But, you know, on the one hand, well, as someone who's really into epistocracy might say, OK, here's how we limit or do the democracy with nudges. What, In your mind, what are you saying that should be adopted or moved toward? Um. Well, um, I, I suppose the, the idea would be to try and make the democratic process more competitive uh, than, it, than it already is. So in other words, um, 
uh, I mean, I, I suppose it's sort of best we're, you know, the, the best way I can understand this is, is in a comparative uh, fashion. And uh, so when I look at um, the United States uh, in particular, I see a first-past-the-post system. So in other words, one where um, the, the person to get the most votes in a particular district uh, wins, uh, and they win, you know, it's a kind of winner-takes-all uh, kind of scenario. And when you scale that up to a national level, uh, that basically means that you can only have very large parties. Um, in, in the US, it's it's two parties. In the UK, because we've got some regional variation, uh, sometimes uh, because of the distribution of, of, of votes, it means you can sometimes get some smaller um, but potentially pivotal third fourth or fifth parties in, in, in involved. Um, but um, the, the system there is designed to um, favour a, um, a, a duopoly, uh, uh, effectively. In much of Europe, um, we instead see a proportional representation, which means that at the voter level, you can get uh, a lot more choice of parties, and those votes are still going to contribute because you know, they'll, they'll be uh, scaled up and you'll end up with some representatives of that party. That party, uh, you know, probably won't be able to form a majority in a proportional representation system. It's very rare for a single party to um, uh, to be a majority, but they can form a coalition and they can influence the coalition uh, that th- that way. Um, uh, we only have one instance, I believe, of a country moving from um, one form to another. Um, and that was New Zealand that moved uh, uh, about uh, 30 years ago, well, probably a bit longer now, actually, because I think about how old I am. But the uh, but uh, they moved from a first past the post, you know, Westminster style system into a, a proportional representation system. And it had some, you know, good outcomes on an already very well run country. So, you know, might be an, it might be an improvement there. Um, in 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 terms of improving some uh, some inclusivity, um, but um, I think the most important thing is removing legal barriers to people who are like unbranded. So the way that um, the U.S. works is that you know d- Democrats and Republicans are always uh, attacking each other um, uh, heavily on everything, except when it comes to local state voter rules, where they understand that they, that their people benefit from being able to, um, make it harder for, uh, third party candidates to kind of, to, uh, to contest elections. And they do this in multiple ways. Um, they, uh, they, they the, the way they influence the way the primaries are, are formed, who gets to go on the ballot, um, and uh, and also through uh, gerrymandering, um, so you know it, it, it's it, it's remarkable that um, uh, basically the so-called bipartisan consensus you get these bipartisan committees that uh, effectively dole out bits of the electoral um, uh, map to each other in order to ensure that uh, you know that uh, that favoured individuals some some sometimes can keep their seats. In a, it doesn't matter if you're in proportional representation system or first past the post system. No other system seems to kind of run that way. Like you know, we we have uh, right. you know, we have we have independent um, boundary drawing for our MPs in the in the United Kingdom, and that means that um, you know that's just one area where that kind of self dealing uh, uh, can't can't happen. Um, so those are kind of the broad uh, things that we we would aim for. Um, 
But rather than kind of say these are the this is like the policy platform, these are kind of examples of policies that we'd want to look at, what we'd be saying is that we want to make the environment as competitive as possible. So the opportunity to bring in new parties um, of, uh, of all kinds or indeed independent candidates who can kind of um, who, can, who can bring in ideas. And the idea is to discipline the, uh, the powerful incumbents. It's not the idea to kind of get rid of any particular party, but rather it's to change their behavior such that they're thinking, OK, we've got to take the views of everyone else seriously right and what one um um i guess i'm trying to figure out the best way to frame this question because it's not necessarily a, a direct critique or a complaint against the kind of things you're talking about but one sort of general objection i've heard raised when um discussions of more uh, proportional uh, representation sort of emerge, especially in countries like canada where the geography is so huge and everyone's spread out and stuff is the classic well you know, then we're going to have, you know, three or four cities basically dictate, you know, what the rest of the country is doing, um, whether it's a valid complaint or not, put that aside for a sec. But it seems that a lot of the parties in Canada also understand, you know, they talk about proportional representation and big game on that kind of stuff and getting more people involved and going more by the vote percentage as opposed to first past the post, which, you know, sort of it discourages more participation in the system. But when they all get in and they all start to start partying with the system, the t- discussions of that starts floating away for various reasons. Mm-hmm. But but a lot of people have also the politicians li- liking the the uh, status quo side. A lot of people also say, um, well, if you have more uh, you know people participating in the system and we do more direct sort of one to one thought process on how the democratic systems run, you will end up with other sort of um, disproportionate effects. I'm not sure if in your in your mind that that's sort of just solved by well, you know, there's ways to gear for that and, and nudge away from that. Or if, if you're if you're if you're thinking, hey, like I mean, that's that's the way it ought to be if we're getting more serious about one to one and incorporating more people into the system. Oh, well, I suppose I could add in addition that, I mean, our, our kind of approach would be very supportive of, of kind of federalism. So you, you could say that at the, uh, yeah, at, at the national level, you know, if, if, there's, if there's two or three cities that happen to have most of the population, then rightfully they should probably determine, you know, quite a lot of, um, of, uh, of national government policy. But that doesn't mean that necessarily um, national government policy should determine everything. Rather, right. it's a good idea if things are are uh, delegated down to um, uh, to to smaller gov- governmental units. And and to be fair, you know, kind of the challenges that face rural communities or smaller cities can be very different from the challenges that larger cities uh, are, are mm-hmm. facing. And so, I, I think there's you know there's a very good case for having um, uh, you know for for, for having uh, more federalism. Um, and in fact. Um, I, I think it depends on, on which way you're looking at it, but um, uh, some policies uh, which are handled at the federal level in the US are actually much more likely to be handled by the provinces in, in Canada. Uh, yeah. So there's, there's, there's quite a lot of, you know, and there's a lot more kind of revenue raising that kind of goes on at that kind of provincial mm-hmm. level. Um, now, Canada, you know, isn't perfect. I mean, I, I, I can't see like an alternative Canada that's like substantially better. You know, there's not like an authoritarian Canada where things, where whole problems have been solved. And there's there's not kind of other alternative radically democratic Canada that I'm going to expect things to be much, much better than they are. Rather, you're kind of, you know, other other countries would look to Canada and think like this, this looks like, a, you know, a... Uh, 
pugnacious, uh, you know, assertive uh, uh, democracy. You know, this is like, you know, where a lot of debates and a lot of, you know, there's a, a lot of fundamental, uh, there's a lot of fundamental disagreement, but on the same, at the same time, there's a lot of, you know, kind of meta-stability and a lot of kind of, uh, you know, o- overall res- respect for human rights and, uh, you know, and a good dose of growth as well. So there's a lot that sort of, there's a lot that Canada has got going for it. And you'd say, well, you know, it's, it's a, uh, a a thorough competitive democracy, and it's also got a, an awful lot of of you know what we call in the literature federalism, but you know you guys call it provinces. So uh, right. I, I think that's what what we, what we go for. It, it would be hard for me to say uh, from an outsider what what additional fix would I put in right now to make uh, Canada more democratic than it is than it is now. All I'd say is. These are pretty good outcomes, and we should we should be in an appreciative mindset when looking at uh, at, at Canadian institutions. Um, in the U.S., we can see that there's a lot more problems. You know, there's a lot there's a lot of very obvious things to do with disenfranchisement. Um, you know, kind of ways of restricting access to the voting booth and, and things that are that are clearly designed to alter the um, uh, the situation in a non competitive way, uh, which we would which we would, which we can oppose. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's one of Canada's best kept secrets is that it's it, the constitution and the makeup of the country, either intentionally or unintentionally, in some ways actually ends up with better, quote, states rights than the way the United States is set up. So that's a funny discussion unto itself. Mm-hmm. But but going back to a point you said at the beginning of all that, I actually found that very interesting that you're, you're uh, and, and I think this is back to the main thread of our conversation. It sounded to me like your, your, uh, your answer to what I had brought up was effectively the discussion isn't who gets to participate or less participation or gearing with that. It's what is under what jurisdiction. And I think Mm -hmm. in classical liberal circles, aside from the folks that are very focused on federalism themselves and states' rights and so on, I find a lot of focus with other folks in classical liberal and libertarian circles is very much about what the national government is doing. And there's a lot of, you know, federal talk when it, when, when in reality, I, I think what you said is actually highly underrated by some, which is, well, why are we even talking about these folks doing that? Maybe that's a better provincial slash state or, or local issue, et cetera. So I thought that was a very interesting key you brought up. Thanks. Yeah, no, I, I think it, it is peculiar how in democratic theory, um, local government is really not on the agenda at all among political yeah. among political theories. It's always about, you know, w- what should Washington do? Or, um, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, uh, I, and I, I don't, I don't, I don't quite know why, but may, maybe, maybe it's because like uh, national government is just, it's just more sexy. It's just, uh, yeah. it's kind of more, it's a more elite thing to be talking about. So, you know, like right. a, a lot, a lot of government isn't sexy. It's routine and mundane and, you know, doing the work to make sure that, you know, like, uh, I don't know, the, um, uh, you know, that your local energy has got like a good mix of, um, you know, kind of, uh, um, uh, renewable, re, you know, renewable resources, or you're heading towards, I don't know, like uh, reducing the sort of carbon intensity of your your activities. Some of this can be set, you know, like the mood might be able to be set at the national level, but it's never going to actually work unless you have people at the local level, um, you know, figuring out ways of of um, you know making these decisions and exactly, you know, uh, where, where development can happen, where things, uh, you know, where, where infrastructure needs to be built, and that kind of thing. Um, that's that's kind of where democracy is. Um, it should be at its strongest. And yet, you know, there's a tendency uh, to centralize and also to be focused always on the center. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and I'm just like keeping an eye on the time here. I have a couple like sort of wrap up questions and then, and then we'll go to a formal wrap up. But um, w- one thing I had noted, and I, this sort of came to me as I was reading uh, your folks's paper there um, 
is that although, like I even said earlier, that I thought the uh, the telecommunications and the smartphone metaphor was very good, and it makes a lot of sense when we're thinking about politics and the same issues here. But some might say that the nature of politics um, and commerce is that it's easier for politicians, frankly, to be blunt, to outright lie than for a business, for instance, to massage consumer opinion and obscure the truth like you know like businesses for example might say that this is the best thing since sliced bread and and you know admittedly and people need to admit a lot of that marketing a lot of that stuff often does work so it's not as if everyone is this rational fully informed consumer exactly as as you said but i i can still see the people that really want to keep that market and politics sort of idea distinct when it comes to knowledge not ignorance say the people on the market still have to live with these products and deal with them it's a lot harder to do what they say is one of the banes of the political arenas existence, which is frankly outright lie or, uh, you know, going beyond massage the truth or, or, you know, uh, take the one sentence of the bill that was read in parliament and pretend that's the whole thing when there's like 7,000 other pages of it, that kind of stuff. Um, and again, although I, though I will say right off the bat that we've already discussed how like you have similar things happening and similar levels of ignorance in both arenas, but some might say there's an extra magic to the political arena that makes it even more susceptible to the problems of ignorance. If, if you see what I'm trying to say, I'm not sure if you had any thoughts on that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, 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 I agree. Um, and I, I suppose that means that if you're in a scenario where um, you have an option of providing a service through a competitive market or through democracy, um, uh, then one might choose um uh, one might choose the uh, a market approach because at least you can hold people more easily responsible for you know for uh, you know for when they fail to deliver a, a service in a way that when things are kind of being decided democratically it's a little bit harder. Um, but normally the choice is not between uh, you know th- that and um, uh, you know between the market and democracy. It's usually between democracy and I don't know bureaucratic um, provision. Uh, you know, sort of a, a, a kind of you know, professional uh, delivery, um, or it's, you know, the, the sort of the epistocratic idea we kind of temper down on the input from, from democracy. Uh, but actually, if people are going to be lying and dishonest, um, then uh, ultimately the best that we've got um, is a, uh, in a competitive democracy is the ability for opponents to call them out. And, you know, it's true that, you know, um, uh, somebody, somebody might nevertheless have their lies continuously believed by you know by the diehard hooligans on one side um but if if you're able to chip away at that you're able to chip away at, 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 at a politician's support by going hey this is actually uh this is um uh you know this your you, you know your your leader is is lying it only takes a few um you know in, in a competitive uh, electoral world uh, for that to make them uh, to, to make them lose so i'm not going to say that it's anywhere perfect and I'm not going to say that it's particularly, uh, um, uh, you know, it, 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 the, the, that it looks great either. But it, it turns out that negative campaigning, the ability to say really horrible things about uh, competitors, is also part of that competitive process. So being able, being able to point out uh, mm-hmm. why uh, uh, why uh, candidates suck, why the other candidate sucks, not just why you're good, is actually a um, is 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 an important part of this rivalrous competitive process as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, one more question before we head to the final wrap up here. Uh, do you think that those who are, for example, 
variant epistocracy or those that are very uh you know skeptical of um of the, frankly the democratic process in general because of this uh, voter ignorance problem we're talking about do you think they focus a little bit too much on just the one vote per person discussion and i'll tell you why i'm saying that because when i think of actually the way the democratic processes work i also think of a lot of secondary associations you know people might not take all the time to inform themselves on an issue but they might join an association subscribe to a newsletter or get sort of more into political uh, activation and knowledge, not by becoming an expert in something, but at least by ratcheting up their awareness to some degree through whether it be a grassroots sort of political activist organization or awareness group or, you know, like even even just sort of um, some sort of uh, set of folks that are trying to raise awareness about one particular drinking water issue in the local area, you know, or whatever it is. So, um, so when I thought about that, as I was reading your paper, I realized that, um, you know, it seems to me, and I'm not sure if you agree, that a lot of the folks that are very uh, skeptical, they're very uh, on the democratic process because of voter ignorance, they're very this one vote, one person focus. And yes, ultimately, that's the ultimate unit. But I find that there's this sort of layer in between the secondary association layer that I think doesn't have as much attention on it as helping and contributing to, uh, you know, knowledge and so on and input into the system. I'm not sure if, if you, you'd agree. And I'm not sure if you have any thoughts on that. No, I, I, I think I think I would I would agree, and I think that um, it, what what those what those associations do is that they they kind of uh, well they, they can have the potential to coordinate voters and put pressure on uh, on on politicians in in that way because they kind of go like well there's a group it's not just a single person that I'm uh, communicating with and it and it might well be the case that the kind of I suppose the lack of associations. Uh, you know, so the, so the drop in membership of political parties um, may have kind of like slightly damaged that kind of that that sort of input um, in in, in mm. recent years. Not not enough to kind of you know to kind of make it catastrophic, but like uh, it, it may have uh, you know m- may may have harmed it in some way. But I I, I think that um, uh, even from our kind of we've kind of in our paper we've kind of accepted this sort of this sort of one voter sort of and and a politician that has to listen to them kind kind of thing um but on on our account it's that kind of associational activity which is observable and produces content that politicians have to have to um uh, uh have to observe um that kind of contributes information so in other words in advance before the election has happened what is it that people are concerned about what are different civil society groups kind of concerned about um how do we kind of alter our bundle so that it's it's competitive so you know like it's uh, it, it, it that's that's the kind of that's the sort of thing that politicians have to have to listen to and that's why they you know that's why they take the emails and their mail and whoever turns up to protest you know with some degree of seriousness because they they they're using it to kind of like figure out you know okay can I, how can I stay in, in office uh, ne- next election? And, um, uh, and, and you're right that, that, that uh, the literature um, doesn't kind of have that kind of, um, d- does not discuss that kind of material enough. Instead, what you kind of see is, is an attempt to bring various ideals, such as the ideal assembly or the ideal deliberative setting, and to try and implement that. As a uh, uh, as as something you know, so you kind of have like these mini publics or um, these uh, these these equivalent to town halls, where um, the idea is that the public will directly decide an issue or will discuss an issue and come up with something you know the, the, where, where kind of both deliberation and knowledge will be kind of elevated. 
Um, and I think what they're kind of missing is that a lot of this stuff happens, but it doesn't happen in one setting. It happens through series of meetings, uh, through things that are not even necessarily political. They kind of happen through, um, you know, things like, uh, you know, sort of churches and, um, uh, and, and kind of business uh, sort of business associational meetings, all of them, mm-hmm. you know, slowly discussing these challenges and then producing reports and pressing them. And eventually politicians, uh, you know, will, will kind of hear that and go like, OK, we can include that in our platform or we can at least answer it in our in our platform. Um, and that's kind of what the, um, you know, what, what what a kind of competitive process produces. It produces this kind of this, the, the, a, a complex set of inputs that doesn't happen at one time in kind of this perfect way, but rather through lots and lots of marginal contributions um, uh, from, from people basically participating in politics very broadly construed. Mm-hmm. Right. No, well, that makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. And with that, Nick, I'm actually going to bring us to our formal wrap up because our time is pretty much wound down here. So let me just say uh, we've talked about a lot. Uh, let's bring the conversation full circle and put a finer point on our exploration of the question. As you might remember, I always want to make sure that the guest ultimately has the last word. So let me throw at you what is sort of our official last question. What do you hope are ultimately the main takeaways for someone listening to you here on whether public ignorance is a problem and how we should think about it? In other words, if you wanted someone to leave here and everything we've discussed with one, two, or just a few takeaways, if anything, what would that be? I think the argument would be that, that public ignorance is not a problem because ultimately people's experiences are valuable. They're valuable to the political process. So whatever one's subjective experience is, um, regardless of your, you know, who, you, who you're addressing it to, it's valuable that it is out there and that it is addressed, whether it's because you're speaking or because you're voting silently uh, in, the, in, in, in the voting booth. Um, I think the, the second broader point that I'd like to highlight, and this is like for classical liberals in particular, is that there are there's, there's curious parallels and similarities between the benefits of competition in the political process as well as in the process of economic production. So in other words, we've often contrasted as a kind of ideology, we've contrasted democracy with markets, but actually in practice, they often tend to go quite closely together. So markets are important for supporting democracy. And at the same time, uh, democratic constitutions are ones where the most complex and most successful markets are able to be sustained. Excellent. I think that's a great place to leave it. So Nick Cowan, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task today again. Thank you so much, Alex. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode was produced by Alex Aragona, Sabine Elchidiak, and Eric Segain. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona, and thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. Thank you.